God's Word says in Acts 23, starting in verse 12, When it was day, the Jews made a plot and bound themselves by an oath neither to eat nor drink till they had killed Paul. There were more than forty who made this conspiracy. They went to the chief priests and elders and said, We have strictly bound ourselves by an oath to taste no food till we have killed Paul. Now therefore you, along with the council, give notice to the tribune to bring him down to you as though you were going to determine his case more exactly. We're ready to kill him before he comes near. Now the son of Paul's sister heard of their ambush, so he went and entered the barracks and told Paul, Paul called one of the centurions and said, Take this young man to the tribune, for he has something to tell him. So he took him and brought him to the tribune and said, Paul, the prisoner has called me and asked me to bring this young man to you, as he has something to say to you. The tribune took him by the hand and going aside asked him privately, What is it that you have to tell me? And he said, The Jews have agreed to ask you to bring Paul down to the council tomorrow, as though they were going to inquire somewhat more closely about him. But do not be persuaded by them, for more than forty of their men are lying in ambush for him, who have bound themselves by an oath neither to eat nor drink till they have killed him. And now they are ready, waiting for your consent. So the tribune dismissed the young man, charging him, Tell no one that you have informed me of these things. Verse 23. Then he called two of the centurions and said, Get ready two hundred soldiers with seventy horsemen and two hundred spearmen to go as far as Caesarea at the third hour of the night. Also provide mounts for Paul to ride and bring him safely to Felix the governor. And he wrote a letter to this effect. Claudius Lysias to His Excellency the Governor Felix, greetings. This man was seized by the Jews and was about to be killed by them when I came upon them with the soldiers and rescued him having learned that he was a Roman citizen. And desiring to know the charge for which they were accusing him, I brought him down to their council. I found that he was being accused about questions of their law, but charged with nothing deserving of death or imprisonment. And when it was disclosed to me that there would be a plot against the man, I sent him to you at once, ordering his accusers to state before you what they have accused him. So the soldiers, according to their instructions, took Paul and brought him by night to Antipatris. And on the next day they returned to the barracks, letting the horsemen go on with him. When they had come to Caesarea and delivered the letter to the governor, they presented Paul also before him. On receiving the letter, he asked what province he was from. When he learned that he was from Cilicia, he said, I will give you a hearing when your, when your accusers arrive. And he commanded him to be guarded in Herod's praetorium. Today let's visit a place called Buckhead. This is actually a part of north central Atlanta where the incomes are above average. Buckhead is where the fanciest malls and shops are. Many people who live in this area are successful and live accordingly. But most of them live with, without Jesus in their lives. That's why our missionaries, Jason and Paige Dees, have moved to Buckhead with their three children and planted Christ Covenant Church. Jason engages people in faith-focused talk about Jesus Christ and good news he brought. Strong Bible-based churches, church services are important. But Jason and Paige see the most evangelistic results from making friends with people they meet around the area. One victory story is about Rick, who came to Christ's covenant first to impress a girl. But that one visit led to more visits. Then Rick joined a home group and later became a follower of Christ. That continuing discipleship process has made his faith tangible and God has been doing great things in his life. 
Jason and Paige are seeing victories like Rick because of church, because our church helps support them through a cooperative program giving. Let's join together today and pray that God will send more victories as the new church grows in numbers and influence. You know, as we gathered in this place this morning, have you ever thought about how you got here? Now, I know as soon as I say that, you're like, well, I got in my car and I drove here. And Now, I'm not talking about how you got here to this place this morning. How did you get to where you are this morning, to where you are in life? Have you ever thought about all the things that led, led you to this place that you are here this morning? I, maybe I'm weird. Maybe I just overthink things, but I, I think about that a lot. I think about, you know, how, how unlikely it was, it is, that God has me in this place at this time doing what I do. And 25 years ago, 25, 30 years ago, if you would have ever told me that I would be pastoring a church in Bluefield, Virginia, I'd have said you were crazy. And the people that knew me at that time would have said uh, that you were crazy. Because that was just the most, that was as far off the radar as you could possibly get. That wasn't in my plans. And where you are here this morning, where you find yourself in your life this morning, this might be the farthest thing from your plans but here's the thing, God's plans are bigger than our plans, aren't they? God's plans, God's ways are not our ways. I can tell you this this morning. I can tell you that no matter how you find yourself this morning, no matter what condition, what situation, no matter what stage of life you're in, I can tell you this morning that you are not here by accident. Not just that you're not here on the face of the earth by accident, but you're not here in this place right now by accident. I'm talking about all the circumstances of your life. Whether you see those circumstances in your life as good circumstances or as bad circumstances, whether they're positive circumstances or whether they're extremely difficult circumstances, you can rest assured that your circumstances in life are not an accident. Our sovereign God, we talk about God as being sovereign. That means that He's in control, He's in charge. And our sovereign God is in and through and behind every circumstance in your life. Whether you recognize Him as so or not, He is. Nothing has ever happened in your life that has been beyond the unseen guiding hand of God. Now some folks will twist that and some folks will, that will cause them to question how can a good God allow these things to happen? But really we should see it as the flip side of that. We should see it as what comfort there is that there is a God who is all knowing and all loving and all powerful. That's in control. And that there is nothing that's beyond Him. Here, here's the thing. It's easy. You know, <clears throat> you know, many times we, we long to see God in the miraculous, right? 
And it's easy to see God in the miraculous when we, when we pray for somebody that's sick and then, and then God delivers them from that sickness or that difficulty or whatever when we pray for somebody to get a job and they get a job and we, and we see that and we chalk that up to God. It's easy to see God in those extraordinary circumstances. But how many of us look for God in the ordinary circumstances of life? You know, I love the miracle stories in the Bible. And growing up in Sunday school, that's what a lot of the Sunday school lessons that I remember was, you know, the, the miraculous events that happened all through Scripture. If I say the word Moses to you, if you've been in church for a while, what's the first thing that comes to your mind? Well, probably the burning bush might come to your mind, right? The, the parting of the Red Sea, the, the plagues in Egypt, all of these miraculous things. Maybe, maybe when he spoke to the rock and water came out of it, or maybe even when he struck the rock and water came out of it. These miraculous events in Moses' life, they, they come to your mind immediately when you begin to think about Moses. But think about how far apart those miraculous events were. During the first 40 years of Moses' life when he was hanging out in Egypt, when he was being educated by the Pharaoh's court and all of that, you don't hear any miraculous stories happening then, do you? And then the next 40 years of his life where he was wandering around in the backside of the desert tending smelly, stinky sheep, you don't hear any miraculous events happening there, do you? That's 80 years of his life. And then the burning bush happens. And it all changes. Well, okay, that was a miracle. And then there's all those other miracles that we talked about that happened in the last 40 years of his life. But even if you add up that time in the last 40 years of his life when those miraculous events happened, there was a whole lot of just plain putting one foot in front of the other, ordinary stuff that happened in his life. There was a whole lot more wandering time than there was miraculous time. As a matter of fact, if you were to add up all the dramatic miracles of, of the Old Testament and you were to spread them out over a 4,000-year period of time, there was a whole lot more day-to-day -day routine than there was miraculous. Even here in the book of Acts, as we've gone through the book of Acts over this past two years, we've seen several miracles, and those miracles might stick in your head. We've seen people healed. We've seen the dead raised. We've even seen... Uh, the dead happen. We've seen angelic prison breaks. We've seen these different miracle stories, healings, and all these uh, these different miraculous events. We've seen the miraculous as we've gone through this book. But when you think about it, there's been a whole lot more day-to-day -day routine. In the years that Paul would spend on his missionary journeys, there was a whole lot of putting one foot in front of the other, day-to-day -day routine. Here's where I think we can make a big mistake. I think we can make a big mistake when we start to think that God only shows up in the miracles. Does God work miracles? Of course God works miracles. Occasionally, occasionally, and that's a key word there, occasionally God breaks into the normal, ordered processes of His creation and He does something extraordinary. The reason we call it extraordinary is because it's extraordinary. It's not the ordinary routine of life. But what about the in-between times? 
What about the times when God doesn't miraculously heal? What about the times when God doesn't supernaturally deliver you? Where's God then? What about the times when you can't seem to see God working at all in your life? Well, rest assured, my friends, God is still there. Amen? God is still on His throne. God is still actively at work. There is never a time when God sits back over the precipice of heaven and takes a break. God is actively at work. In every single seen and unseen detail of life, God is actively working. Matter of fact, he puts it like this in his word. He says that he's actively working all things together for good, for the good of those who trusted him, for the good of those he's called and who've believed him, and for his glory. There is nothing in your life that isn't supernaturally guided by God's unseen hand. And all that should be comforting. Theologians have a fancy word for that. They call it the doctrine of providence. Providence. That's a good one to remember. Providence is God's unseen hand moving and directing and guiding all things toward His ends and toward His purposes. As we've been going through the book of Acts, we've seen... Just a couple of weeks ago, we've seen that one of God's purposes, one of God's ends for Paul was to get Paul from where he was to Rome. That was where God wanted to get him. Remember just last week, back in verse 11, Jesus stood by Paul and He reaffirmed that. He stood by him and told him that just as in the same way that He had proclaimed the gospel in Jerusalem, God was telling him that He was going to be proclaiming the gospel in Rome. That was a promise to him. And in our passage this morning, we're going to see, even though God's name isn't mentioned, even though there's no prayers lifted up, even though there's nothing, even though it's all unseen, we're going to see how God's unseen hand of providence is steadily getting him to where God promised him that he was going to take him. So to get Paul to Rome, God used three things. He used a conspiracy, he used a child, and he used a commander. All of them were behind the scenes. None of them knew that God was guiding them to this purpose. But God was using all of them, each of them, to accomplish His will. The first thing that God used was a conspiracy. Look at verses 12 through 15 again. It says, When it was day, the Jews made a plot and bound themselves by an oath, neither to eat nor drink until they had killed Paul. Well, that's some sort of a diet plan, isn't it? There were more than 40, there were more than 40 who made this conspiracy. They went to the chief priests and elders and said, We have strictly bound ourselves by an oath to taste no food until we have killed Paul. Now therefore, along with the council, give notice to the tribune to bring him down to you as though you were going to determine his case more exactly. We're ready to kill him before he comes, comes near. Boy, people think they're smart, don't they? They, they thought they had all this figured out. They, 
if they if you can't get the job done first by having this big protest, which they had back in the last chapter, and if you can't get the government to do your job for you, then hey, let's just let's just conspire with a group of protesters and we'll get this done on our own. And that's what was happening here. They had first tried to kill Paul by working this this mob up into a frenzy. And the Roman government, they didn't like mobs, so they broke up the mob. They grabbed Paul, and they took him to decide to handle it themselves. But the Jews weren't, um, they weren't that trusting of the Romans. So they say, well, okay, the government is trying to do this thing over here, but we want to kill Paul, so we're going to lure him from there to the Sanhedrin, we're going to tell them that we're bringing Paul, that we want them to bring Paul from there to the Sanhedrin so that we can do our behind-the-scenes trial. But we really don't want to have a trial. We just want to kill him along the way. Well, that made sense because really the only reason that the Roman tribune, the Roman government was involved was because they were just trying to stop the mob. And they were trying to figure out what in the world Paul, Paul was being accused of. So they were, you know, they would have been open to the idea of let's just get Paul off our hands, let Sanhedrin handle it quietly. But this conspiracy was behind the scenes, trying to kill Paul. So this conspiracy was underway, underway, but it was soon to be uncovered by a child. God used a conspiracy to get Paul to Rome. He also used a child. Look at verses 16 through 22. Now the son of Paul's sister heard of their ambush. So he went and entered the barracks and told Paul. Paul called one of the centurions and said, Take this young man to the tribune, for he has something to tell him. So he took him and brought him to the tribune and said, Paul the prisoner called me and asked me to bring this young man to you as he has something to say to you. Verse 19, The tribune took him by the hand and going aside asked him privately, What is it that you have to tell me? He said, the Jews have agreed to ask you to bring Paul down to the council tomorrow as though they were going to inquire somewhat more closely about him. But do not be persuaded by them, for more than 40 of their men are lying in ambush for him who have bound themselves by an oath neither to eat nor drink till they have killed him. Now they're ready, waiting for your consent. So the tribune dismissed the young man, charging him, tell no one that you've informed me of these things. Okay, first thing when I, when I read that, the first thing I think, this gives you a little clue into my mind. First thing I think is Paul had a sister? Who knew? As a matter of fact, we don't know anything really about Paul's earthly family. We hear all over and over again about all these folks that he was discipling, but we don't know anything about his family. In another place in Scripture, we find out that his dad was a Pharisee, but really that's all that we know, except for this. So he had a sister... And his sister had a little boy. This little boy was really nobody. I mean, this is the only description that we have of him, and Scripture didn't even, Luke didn't even see fit to give us the boy's name. He was insignificant. He was unnamed. He was young. He was probably a, around a preteen, early teenager type. I mean, he was pretty articulate, so he couldn't have been a little boy. But he certainly wasn't a young man either. He was right in that preteen age. And this little fellow, man, he brings all kinds of questions to my mind. How, how did this little fellow hear about the conspiracy? 
Was he just hanging around eavesdropping? Was his daddy part of the conspiracy? Maybe he heard it around the dinner table at home. Daddy telling mama about what was going on. I, I don't know. It's just how my imagination works. But and then you think about how in the world did he get to Paul? How, how did this little boy stroll up the steps and walk into the secure facility of Fort Antonio? And then walk right up to the cell where Paul was. I mean, he had to be under some pretty thick security because they knew that people were trying to kill him, right? This little boy just, what, did he sneak in? Did he know the guards? Yet this kid just strolls right up to Paul's cell to have a conversation with him. I don't know. You can figure that stuff out on your own. But what a conversation that he had with Paul. So he had this conversation with Paul, and then Paul calls over one of the centurions, one of the Roman military leaders, to take the boy to the headman in charge, the tribune, the man named Claudius Lysias. Now I want you to picture this. Here's Claudius Lysias. Claudius Lysias is a hardened Roman soldier who's worked his way up through the ranks of the hardened Roman military. He is the boss over centurions, and centurions are the boss over... Each centurion was the boss over a hundred hardened Roman soldiers. This guy, Claudius Lysias, he was... um, I don't know what area you might think of tough guys on TV, but he was either the rock or Sergeant Rock. I don't know. He was a tough guy. He ate tough guys for breakfast. If any adult male had come to him with this story, first off, if he would have gotten to the cell, if he would have gotten to Claudius Lysias with this story, Claudius Lysias probably would have had him beaten and thrown in the cell with Paul. But here comes this little boy. And when the little boy came to him, he listened. I, I think it's, it's a, a beautiful picture there in verse 19. It, it says that Claudius took the boy by the hand. This hardened, rough and tough, blood, spit and nails commander takes his little boy by the hand. I don't know, maybe, you know, speculation again. Maybe he had a boy that was the same age as Paul's nephew. I don't know. But for some reason, for some unseen reason, Paul's nephew found a willing, attentive audience with this crusty, battle-hardened Roman. And you think that was an accident? <laughs> okay, the conspiracy was underway. A child uncovered it. Now it was time for the commander to take charge. Look at, and this is a longer passage, verse 23 through the end of the chapter. Follow along with me if you would. Then he called two of the centurions, he, Claudius Lysias, the tribune, called two of the the centurions and said, get ready 200 soldiers with 70 horsemen, 200 spearmen, go as far as Caesarea at the third hour of the night. Also provide mounts for Paul to ride and bring him safely to Felix the governor. And he wrote a letter to this effect, Claudius Lysias to His Excellency, uh, the Governor Felix, greetings. 
This man was seized by the Jews, was about to be killed by them. When I came upon them and the soldiers rescued him, having learned that he was a Roman citizen, and desiring to know the charge for which they were accusing him, I brought him down to their council. I found out that he was being accused about questions of their law, but charged with nothing deserving death or imprisonment. It was when it was disclosed to me that there would be a plot against the man, I sent him to you at once, ordering his accusers also to state before you what they have against him. That's the end of his letter, and then this the, the event goes on. So the soldiers, according to their instructions, took Paul, brought him by night to Antipateris. On the next day they returned to their barracks, letting the horsemen go with him, uh, go on with him. When they had come to Caesarea and delivered the letter to the governor, they presented Paul also before him. On reading the letter, he asked what province he was from. When he learned that he was from Cilicia, he said, I will give you a hearing when your accusers arrived. And he commanded him to be guarded in Herod's praetorium. Okay. Did you see what was happening there? Do you see the overkill? I mean, Paul was a beaten up, bruised, broken little man. And the extent that Claudius Lysias went to to keep this man safe. Claudius Lysias, he he didn't have any inkling, he didn't have any desire to send Paul all the way to Rome. All that he wanted to do was find out what in the world this cat did to get everybody so stirred up against him. And he knew that if he kept him there, that he'd get killed and it'd be a worse riot. So he really what he did was he just kind of kicked him up the food chain to his boss, Felix. Claudius took command of the situation and got him out of there to the next higher up commander. And he loaded up... 200 elite Roman legionnaires, folks who were skilled in hand-to-hand combat. On top of that, he loaded up 70 mounted cavalry troops. Cavalry. Cavalry. There's a difference. (laughs) Cavalry troops. And on top of that, he loaded up another 200 spearmen. If we were to think of that in our terms, it would be like riflemen, folks that could handle long-distance stuff. He loaded up brute force, speed, and precision. And he put this massive team together just to protect one man so that he could get him 65 miles down the road to Caesarea. You think that was an accident? Caesarea, by the way, it was the Roman headquarters. It was the kind of the Roman capital of the region of Judea. That was where the the regional boss, Felix, was. And this prisoner transfer, it happened just the way Claudius planned it. And now here's Paul safely in the governor's official residence under guard there. Now, he still wasn't in Rome. God promised him that he would go to Rome. He, He still wasn't in Rome, but he was one step closer on the way. Thanks to a conspiracy, a child, and a commander. And behind them all, unbeknownst to each of them, the unseen, guiding hand of God. It'd be nice as we were, as we go through the day-to-day events in our life, as we go from 
trials to victories to difficulties to joys. It would be nice if along the way, every step along the way, that we could actually see God's unseen hand, wouldn't it? It would be nice if we could see and figure out exactly how God is working all things together for good in our lives, wouldn't it? But here's the thing, if we could see it, there wouldn't be any need for faith, would there? In Hebrews 11, the Bible tells us that without faith, it is impossible to please God. So if we're going to please God, then we got to have faith. And if we got to have faith, that means that we can't see everything. Faith only happens when we don't see all the details of how God is working out things in our lives. In other words, faith only happens when we can't see the hand of God at work. So based on what Paul, what happened to Paul in this passage, I want to show you three quick ways that God's unseen hand is working in your life, in my life. First, those things that you might see as obstacles in your life aren't. Let me say that again. Those things that you might see as obstacles in your life aren't. I don't know about you, but if I had 40 people out there who swore that they wouldn't eat or drink until they killed me, that'd be kind of scary, wouldn't it? I mean, not only are they angry, they're hangry, right? That's an obstacle. I would view that as an obstacle in my life. But then again, my faith sometimes gets so weak that I see things a whole lot less than that as obstacles in my life. This stupid cold that I've got, I see this as an obstacle. When the Internet goes down, I see that as an obstacle. If I get stuck in traffic, I see that as an obstacle. If it rains too much or it doesn't rain enough, I see those things as obstacles in my life. But when we trust the unseen hand of God, when we trust that the unseen hand of God is at work in everything, then the things that we see as obstacles in our life really aren't. The things that we see as obstacles in life, we begin to see those as part of His all-wise, all-knowing, all-loving plan to get us from where we are to where He wants us to be. No matter what it is. Even when the obstacles are far more serious than a Stupid cold or traffic jams or petty things like that. Even when the obstacles are as serious as the loss of a job or even as heartbreaking as the loss of a loved one. In 1774, a man named William Cooper wrote a hymn that's on page 664 in our hymnals. You can look that up later, but I just want to give you a couple of the verses in it. We don't sing it. I don't know why we don't. Maybe maybe we should start. <clears throat> The first verse says this, God moves in a mysterious way His wonders to perform. He plants His footsteps in the sea and rides upon the storm. And then verse 3 says, Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust Him for His grace. Behind a frowning providence, He hides a smiling face. That's beautiful. See, as a believer, one day, the obstacle that you see now as frowning providence, one day God will reveal that to you 
as his smiling face to you. The unseen hand of God uses obstacles in your life to accomplish his will for you. So the things that you see as obstacles, they aren't really. Second, the people that you see in your life as insignificant, they aren't. Let me say that again. Those people you see as insignificant in your life, they aren't insignificant. Paul's nephew was so insignificant, we don't even know the little fellow's name. We don't know his mama's name. We don't know anything about him. He doesn't show up anywhere else in Scripture. This is the only place that he's ever mentioned. He was the kind of kid that if you were walking in a crowd, you'd walk past him and you wouldn't even notice him. He was the epitome of insignificant. But that little insignificant little boy, he was a key part of God's plan for Paul to carry the gospel to Rome. That boy, as insignificant as we might think of him, that boy was a finely tuned instrument in the master craftsman hands. He was a finely tuned instrument in God's almighty hand. He wasn't insignificant at all. Listen to me, there is no one too insignificant for God to use. No one. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 26 through 29 says this, Consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. You know, we often think that God needs to find people with money or power or positions or, or social status or even charismatic personalities. We often think that God needs to find people like that. That's who He can really use. (laughs) Now, the unseen hand of God uses people that are the most unlikely and seemingly insignificant people to accomplish His will, including you and including me. Third, those powers that you see as controlling things, They aren't. You know, Claudius Lysias, he was a powerful man, wasn't he? Claudius Lysias thought that he was in control. He he commanded a bunch of troops. He took charge of the situation. He'd say things and people would listen to him. He'd say things and people would do stuff. But even when it got too big for him, when he kicked it up the food chain to Felix... Felix thought he was in charge. And then when Felix passed it on over to his successor, Festus, that we'll see in coming chapters, Festus thought he had it under control. And then Festus had to kick it up to Agrippa, and Agrippa thought that he was in control. And finally, it ended up in the lap of Caesar, who was the most powerful man in the world at the time. And every one of them thought that they were in control. Just like a lot of politicians today today think that they're in control. But here's the thing. God's unseen hand is really the only hand that's ultimately in control. 
You remember what Jesus told Pilate? Pilate thought that he was in control. In John chapter 19, verse 11, Jesus told Pilate, He said, You would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given to you from above. Proverbs chapter 21, verse 1 says, The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of God. He turns it wherever he will. Romans 13.1 says, For there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Here's what I think is ironic. When you, when you study history, you realize that almost all governments throughout history have either been pagan or secular. But the unseen hand of God has used every single one of them to accomplish His eternal purposes. Whether you're talking about Egypt, ancient Egypt, or Assyria, or Babylon, or Greece, or Rome, or China, or Russia, or even our beloved USA. The unseen hand of God guides all nations to accomplish His purposes, to accomplish His will. See, we need to get this in our mind. God is in control, not governments. Listen, if you don't get anything else that I've said out of this sermon, and I know it's been a long text and there's been a lot of historical, there's been a lot of reading in this. If you don't get anything else out of this sermon this morning, here's what I want you to hear. Are you ready? Shake your head. Are you ready? Nothing in your life is an accident. Amen? Nothing in your life is an accident. Everything in your life up to this point has directed you to where you are right now. Here in this place, at this time. God's plan for your life brought you specifically to gather here in this place with this church family at this time. God's unseen hand specifically brought you here to hear this word this morning. Do I know why? No. But He does. It's not coincidence. It's providence. The only question is, what are you going to do? What are you going to do now? Because even though God's unseen hand is guiding you, He doesn't force you to follow Him. God's unseen hand is not the hand of a puppeteer that forces us into doing things. No, God's unseen hand has brought you to this place at this time so that you can make a choice, so that you can choose to follow Him. He won't make you follow Him. He won't force you to trust Him. He won't force you to call upon Jesus as your Lord and Master and Savior. But He is calling you. He is drawing you. You could even put it like this. He's wooing you. And He's promised that whosoever will call upon the name of Jesus as Lord will be saved. So despite the obstacles in your life, despite the difficulties in your life, despite the distractions in your life, God's providence has brought you here to this place this morning. He's used this insignificant preacher to speak His Word to you this morning. And no power can keep you away from following Him. So the only question is, 
The only question that all of this boils down to is will you follow him?